Hey guys, welcome back to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. You can find me on Twitter at jchanpharma. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that the general format of the show is for me to invite a guest to come on and share about their journey into healthcare and the nature of the work that they're doing now. After all, the goal of this podcast is to democratize healthcare conversations so that important conversations and insights are not hidden behind some registration page of health conferences, file summits, or webinars. But this episode is going to be a little different. I didn't book any guests, and I haven't really prepared a list of topics to discuss. Now, in this episode, I'm going to share with you what happened to me in the past two months, or more specifically, how I got seriously sick. So we'll break away from our usual programming, and if you'll indulge me in this storytelling episode. Since I updated my status on social media, a lot of people have reached out via text message or email to send their regards and well wishes, and I have to say, I was so touched by that. So thank you for all your kind words and support, and I feel like I owe it to you to tell you what happened. But for those of you who may have missed my Twitter update around late April, I was actually hospitalized for about a month. I tweeted that update from my hospital bed a week into my treatment, not knowing how my situation would turn out. Well, it's been about a month since I got discharged, and so I've had some time to process the whole ordeal, mentally and emotionally as well. Obviously, there's so much I can unpack from this experience, and I gotta say, I've never really been in a situation where my life was on the line, and so obviously, there's a lot to think about, and it really gives you pause about life in general, the brevity and fragility of it, and how you can live life with more meaning and purpose and so on. But I'll save that side of the story for maybe another episode and, you know, maybe an episode in the future about what it's like being a patient and the emotional aspects of it, uh, especially if you're dealing with something that's, you know, critical or severe. Um, And I'll certainly be able to add to that conversation now. Okay, so back to my story of how I got sick. I went into the hospital mid-April, but even before that, I was actually already pretty sick. But the scary thing is, I just didn't know it yet. I remember getting a fever at the beginning of the month, and at first thinking maybe I have COVID. Somehow, I caught COVID out in the world, in the city, even though the local cases here are pretty low in Hong Kong. So anyways, I went to the closest hospital, a public hospital, to get tested, and the test came back negative. So they sent me away with some ibuprofen, and I thought that was it, right? But what followed was what felt like a series of fevers in the week to follow. The fevers would come at night, and I would take ibuprofen and drink more water and crawl into bed and try to sleep it off or sleep more and try to get more rest basically. Some nights were pretty bad because I would be shivering violently from the fever and my wife would put an ice pack on my head to try to cool me down. I went to the GP downstairs a few times and since I didn't have any other symptoms, he couldn't really figure out what was wrong with me and so he recommended I see an infectious disease specialist. So I left the doctor's clinic 
feeling like I have no idea what's happening to me. Um, so I really should see that specialist. And that night, my leg started hurting. And I woke up the next day to find that my leg pain has worsened. And not only that, I couldn't even walk anymore. I couldn't put weight on it. And I also noticed a bruise had developed on my foot overnight. Now, at this point of the story, I should mention that a couple of months before, I had reconnected with a friend whose wife is a doctor and used to work in the ICU of a public hospital. So we've been texting back and forth for a couple of months, just talking about life in general. And naturally, I shared that I've been getting these fevers on and off. And, you know, that morning I saw a text from him. And so I texted him back, uh, telling him I developed some leg pain overnight and bruising and can't really stand that well now. And within minutes, he calls me with his wife on the line. And she told me to immediately go to the hospital. So we took advice and opted to go to a private hospital because with something so acute and potentially serious, it's better to get diagnosed as soon as possible instead of risk going to a public hospital and waiting for hours and hours before someone will see you. And in, in, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad we did that because I had no idea what was coming. Also, private hospitals tend to be well-funded and have better diagnostic equipment and resources in general. So if finance is not an issue for something so serious, it's better to go private, figure out what's wrong ASAP. And if you have to, for financial reasons, switch back to public hospital later for continuing your treatment. So they put me in a wheelchair and took me to see an emergency medicine specialist at the hospital. After asking me about my symptoms doing a quick physical check on me and listening to my chest with his stethoscope, he told me that I may have a serious heart infection. And he told me it's something called infective endocarditis. And that if I had waited any longer, I could be in a life-threatening situation. So that was a working diagnosis. And, you know, before I go any further, let's talk about what is infective endocarditis, or IE for short. IE is an infection that occurs inside the heart, usually at the heart valves. It's usually caused by bacteria that has entered the bloodstream, and this state is known as septicemia or bacteremia. And it's a pretty dangerous situation to be in. It's basically one step away from sepsis, which is when your body's immune system kicks into overdrive because of an infection and starts damaging your own tissues and organs. and you could go into septic shock and eventually die. According to the Wikipedia page for IE, citing a paper published in 2017, IE has a prevalence of about 5 per 100,000 people per year, which is pretty much 1 in 20,000. Those are pretty good odds, right? In other words, you have a pretty good chance of not getting it. But then in my case, somehow I got lucky and I was that lucky one in 20,000. So, um, yeah, that's that. Keep this in, keep this number in mind though, because, oh, it gets better or, or, or worse, I guess. So IE is in fact a critical illness. And I realized this when we went through our health insurance policies. And IE is listed as one of the conditions covered under my critical illness policy, which I bought years ago. Now, 
health insurance is another topic in itself, and it probably deserves its own episode, uh, and we'll maybe cover that some other time. But, you know, when you have a medical incident, medical emergency, one of the things that makes it really tough for, you know, your loved ones and your family is suddenly they have to deal with all this, like, hospital bill and medical insurance on the fly. So they have to get on the phone and try to grab your agent and um, figure out what's covered, what's not covered, and things like that. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to health insurance. But when I was prepping for this episode and I was reading up more on IE, I realized that IE is listed as a rare disease in the National Organization of Rare Disorders, or NORD, in the U.S. And I actually found their summary to be really well written and pretty much spot on in my case, so I'll just read this part. Infective endocarditis is an infection of the inner lining of the heart muscle, or endocardium, caused by bacteria, fungi, or germs that enter through the bloodstream. It occurs most frequently in patients with abnormal heart valves, artificial or prosthetic heart valve, or in people who have a pacemaker lead. Any structural heart disease can predispose a person to developing IE. The presenting symptoms are a low-grade persistent fever without an obvious cause, fatigue, and shortness of breath on exertion. Patients may also have joint and muscle pain, and their health care provider may hear a new or changing murmur. The endocardium covers the heart valves, and it is these valves which are primarily affected by IE. If the infection remains untreated, multiplying bacteria may eventually destroy the valves and result in heart failure. Bacteria may also form small clots or emboli, which move through the blood and block small arteries. These clots may lodge in various parts of the body, including the brain, and cause serious damage. So that sounds pretty scary, right? And in my case, I had those symptoms. I had the persistent fever for about two weeks, and then the leg pain started, which turned out to be an emboli that went into my leg and clogged up some small arteries. I was fortunate, though, in that the clot went into my leg and not my head, where you know I could have su- suffered the stroke, or if it went into an organ, I could have had organ failure. So to be crippled for about a week is not that bad in comparison. But coming back to the story, you know, once they suspected it was IE, they admitted me into the hospital and that first day was really tough in the hospital. First of all, I didn't eat anything in the morning before rushing to the hospital and for the rest of the day, I couldn't eat or drink anything either because they had to do all these tests on me. And I have the list of tests here with me and the costs. So let me share with you all the tests that they did. So they did an echocardiogram, which is basically using ultrasound to look at my heart in the valves and what the blood flow looks like. So this sent me back $3,000, Hong Kong dollars, uh, a chest x-ray, $240, a urine test with multi-sticks, which is a quick way of checking if I have you know, any protein or blood or anything unusual in the urine. That was $180. A Doppler ultrasound for my leg to see if there's any blockage. And that was another $3,000. And they also did something called the transesophageal echocardiogram, or TEE, which was by far the worst one. It's a type of echocardiogram that involved sticking a tube down my throat for a closer look at my heart. 
they sprayed a numbing agent in my throat to suppress any gag reflex I might have. And that's that spray tasted like pure liquid evil. It was so disgusting. But it, it did work. I didn't gag or anything. And the whole process took at least 20 minutes. So when I did all these tests, they brought me back to my ward, to my bed, where an army of nurses and the emergency medicine doctor waited. They wanted my blood for testing and for blood culturing. So the blood cultures were for growing bacteria to see if there's bacteria in the blood and in the process, identify what bacteria may have caused my IE. And so the doctor poked around my arms to find suitable veins to insert a, what they call a cannula, so that they can draw blood. This process is called a phlebotomy, and it took a good 10 minutes because he wanted to draw blood from three different places, but he also had trouble finding good veins to cannulate because by this point, I was pretty drained and, you know, I haven't had any water the whole day. And he told me my veins were like a desert because I was so dehydrated and it was really hard for him to cannulate. But eventually he got his blood sample and, you know, after he was done, they set up an IV drip in my arm and started my treatment. So my treatment was intravenous antibiotics. And I remember asking him, how long will this treatment take? And when he told me it could be around four to six weeks, I was really shocked because in my mind, I guess I was just thinking maybe one or two weeks of oral antibiotics would be enough. Um, I guess I was mentally anchored to, you know, all those times when, say, I, I caught a cold, for example, and then I developed an upper respiratory tract infection. And the GP would just put me on a weeks of oral antibiotics, and then I would be fine. So, uh, so then I asked, why does it take that long? And he said, IE is very serious. It can be very difficult to treat, and oral antibiotics just isn't strong enough to clear the bacteria in the blood. The echocardium also showed that there is what they call vegetation at the heart valve, which is their medical term for when bacteria has colonized and basically set up camp at the site of infection. And so you need to have IV antibiotics in order to get rid of it. And it has to be infused for at least four to six weeks to really clear everything. So that was day one. And throughout the night, the nurses would come in just to check up on me and take my temperature and vital signs every hour or so. The next few days were less intense for me, but still concerning for my doctors as they waited for all the test results to come back. Because the thing with IE is that things can change very quickly for the worse. For example, if I suddenly developed a fever again, that's not a good sign. Or if another bruise developed on my hands and feet, that's not a good sign. It could be that, you know, the antibiotics just isn't working and bacteria is still growing and multiplying and you know, forming emboli and clotting everywhere else. But uh, my doctors were great. They answered all my questions during my whole stay in the hospital. In terms of my care team, three doctors looked after me. The emergency medicine specialist who gave the working diagnosis, a cardiologist who did the echocardiograms, and an infectious disease specialist who focused on the infection aspect of my condition, such as identifying the pathogen in my blood. So the next day, I asked them about the tests, and they said initial results were encouraging. 
The chest x-ray was normal. The echocardiogram didn't show too much vegetation in the heart. And the Doppler ultrasound on my leg ruled out deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, which is the formation of blood clots in a deep vein. It's also very dangerous. You get more emboli flying around your bloodstream and clogging different sites. So that was all good. Uh, The blood cultures, on the other hand, was not good news. It came back positive for bacteria. In fact, all three samples had very high bacterial load, and the blood test showed that, among other things, my inflammatory markers were quite elevated. They tested uh, for these two markers. One is called CRP, or C-reactive protein. The other is ESR, or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and both were elevated due to my infection. So, you know, it took them a few more days to determine what the bacteria was, and when the results came back, everything felt ridiculous. Now, why do I say that? Well, after googling what bacteria causes IE, I found out that the most common bacterial cause of IE is Staphylococcus aureus. It's one of the most common bacteria that we exist with. It's everywhere, right? Staphylococcus aureus is responsible for about one-third of all IE cases. And then you have certain groups of bacteria under the streptococcus species that can also cause IE. And then you also have enterococcus, which is usually found in the gut. So these are the, you know, more common culprits of IE. Now, remember the odds of getting IE is 1 in 20,000? So get this, the bacteria that caused my infection is none of these. The one that got me sick is called Neisseria elongata. That's right, I've never heard of it. You've never heard of it. 99% of the world's population has never heard of this thing. Well, it turns out Neisseria elongata is a bacteria commonly found in your mouth, in the oral flora, and it rarely causes IE. It's a member of the Neisseria family of bacteria, and the most well-known members include Neisseria gonorrhea, which you guessed it, causes gonorrhea, and Neisseria meningitis, which causes meningitis. Neisseria elongata, on the other hand, is thought to be non-pathogenic, but somehow for me, it got pathogenic and it gave rise to my serious heart infection. Now, I googled this as well, and there are some papers talking about this specific bacteria uh, causing IE, so it's not, you know, non-existent. There are cases, but it is pretty rare. Now, you're probably wondering by now, John, why don't you buy the lottery? You know, you have pretty good odds of winning, despite impossible odds, it seems. And yeah, I I don't know why. Maybe I I should start buying the lottery. Um, But anyways, so we, you know, once we ID'd the bacteria and determined that this was not drug resistant and, you know, the treatment seems to be working, the rest of my treatment was pretty straightforward um, because we now know what we're dealing with. And so, uh, you know, I just... They, they kept my treatment for the rest of time there. So we can skip ahead and I'll tell you that after four weeks of antibiotics, I was discharged and now I've re- recovered from the infection. So that was my story of how I survived a critical illness, i.e. And honestly, that was already kind of the short version. There's so much more that I can unpack, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll save some for future episodes. But uh, yeah, before... 
you know, I wrap up this episode, I do just want to spend a few more minutes to share some of the things that I learned about this chapter of my life. You know, for the average person, the chances of you getting IE is pretty slim. And, you know, not every critical illness is preventable in the same way, but for the ones that are somewhat avoidable, or at least you can do something to mitigate your risk, I'll just share three things you probably know you should do to stay healthy, but may forget about. So number one, don't postpone medical care. One of the mistakes I've made in the beginning was putting off seeing the doctor and getting to the bottom of my condition. And as I reflect back on the weeks, the first weeks of getting sick and getting these fevers, I think it was a combination of things that made me delay my care. First of all, you know, I will give myself credit for going to a public hospital the first time I developed a fever because I thought it was COVID. And so it's, you know, as, as inconvenient as it was, it was necessary for me to get tested immediately. My mistake, though, comes from assuming that the fever is not, were not, nothing serious. And since I tested negative for COVID, I can probably take some ibuprofen and drink more water and sleep it off, right? And, you know, maybe it's a guy thing. Maybe us guys, we just assume that we're stronger than we think and we'll just fight off whatever it is uh, and sleep it off or whatever. But I should have taken this, the fevers more seriously, uh, especially since it kept on coming back and they were high fevers as well. Another thing was that I was pretty busy and going to the doctors was inconvenient. I had ongoing work and I was working with clients who needed me to help them with some projects and I wanted to deliver. And, you know, so I was reluctant to go back to the GP repeatedly since I didn't have any symptoms anyway. And honestly, I don't know how much earlier I could have found out about my infection and I don't know how much it could have saved or spared my body from some of the trauma, but you know, you should try to, you know, go to the doctor as soon as possible if something is not right. So that was point number one. Point number two, just take care of yourself. One of the, the biggest questions I had about my IE was how did I get infected in the first place? Well, as the blood culture showed, the culprit for my infection was this Neisseria elongata thing, a bacteria found in the mouth. And so my doctors suspect that the bacteria entered into my bloodstream via my gums. And I remember the first two days in the hospital, the doctors kept on asking me things like, have I had any dental work done recently? Or do I have any pets at home? And at first, I didn't know why they were asking me these questions, but I later realized they were trying to figure out or determine how I could have gotten infected. And the thing is, pets can, you know, scratch you and maybe bacteria on your skin could have gone into the wound. Maybe in terms of dental work, uh, bacteria could have gone into your bleeding gums, for example. And so after they ID'd the bacteria, I thought about my own dental routine and oral hygiene. And, you know, it could be the reason why I got infected. It probably is, considering where the bacteria comes from. And you know how they say that you should change your toothbrush every three months or so? Well, I have to admit, I don't follow that rule too religiously and change it whenever I remember to. Because basically every morning you get up and you just want to go about your day. And so I sort of just rush through uh, my dental routine, do a quick brush and get on with it. And same thing at night, you're probably tired and just want to go to bed, so you do a quick brush and go to bed. But, you know, after winning this medical jackpot, I'll be sure to change my toothbrush regularly, and now I use mouthwash every day just to kill off all the germs that could get me in trouble again, right? 
And I guess the final thing I'll leave you with is to get health insurance. This is a huge one because having health insurance really saved us from financial stress this time. I can only speak for the health insurance in Asia and more specifically in Hong Kong, but we were fortunate that we had health insurance through our employer and also I had my own personal policy to shoulder like 90% of the hospital bill this time. And the thing with insurance is, you know, I hate seeing insurance premiums draining my bank account for the next 20 or 25 years. It's like a leech that I can't shake off for the rest of my working life. But you never know when you need it. So it's, it's kind of like cybersecurity, paying for a firewall or antivirus programs. You don't know you need it until you need it. So do explore the options out there to protect yourself and your loved ones in case anything happens. So yeah, with that, I'll just end the podcast here. Um, thanks everyone for listening and thanks so much for, you know, caring and supporting the podcast as well. I'll be back with some interesting guests and posts in the future. So yeah, I'll see you next time.